This talk is offered by Ordinary Mind Zendo. Ordinary Mind was founded by Barry Magid, Dharma heir of Charlotte Joko Beck, and is dedicated to her vision of a psychologically minded Zen practice adapted to the needs of American students practicing in the context of their everyday lives. Our public programs are made possible by donations from people like you. I'd like to begin this morning talking about the idea of immersion as it's presented in uh, the Jay Garfield book. I think that opens up into a lot of uh, different areas or topics that we might be able to discuss uh, beyond what's uh, that chapter. He begins with um, a Taoist legend of a uh, legendary butcher, Butcher Ding, uh, who is able to so skillfully carve up animals at the joint that his knife meets no resistance and that it is, he's been able to use the same knife uh, for 20 years, even though for ordinary butchers they have to change out their knives every year or two. This parable has a couple interesting features to it. Um, first, I think it's, it's interesting, it's a Taoist uh, Parable. I don't think you could have a um, easily a, a Buddhist version with a butchering animals, and I'm not sure it would work if uh, he was, you know, slicing up carrots uh, in the same way. Although, if you watch people who are professional chefs chop vegetables, they can do it with an extraordinary skill that. Uh, is beyond our sort of usual ways of just chopping up a carrot or an onion, right? Um, so we perhaps could translate uh, uh, Butcher Ding's special knife capacities into uh, a vegetarian realm. Uh, but they would still involve a kind of extraordinary set of skills, right? Uh, what it adds to go from the, um, the carrot to the ox is that he, in not just hand skills but eye skills. It's as if he sees exactly where the joint is to, uh, and where to slip in the knife so it meets no resistance. And this um, has a lot in common with uh, a topic we've been talking about in terms of seeing reality directly. Uh, he's, he's carving reality at the joints as if there are natural joints in the world as there are in an animal. Uh, and that part of what we're trained to do is see exactly how things are and how they fit together. And if we uh, have this 
skilled, correct perception, uh, the enlightened eye as well as the butcher's eye, there's a way in which we will uh, move through life just as seamlessly as the butcher's knife moves through the joints of the ox, right? That, I think, is part of the metaphorical um, uh, assumption behind that kind of uh, parable. And Garfield is trying to use the, the parable, this parable of immersion uh, as an example of what we more commonly uh, think of as flow, uh, where you're immersed or caught up in an activity, typically uh, uh, an expert or athletic activity where you've got great uh, practice and proficiency, so that um, you don't become aware of yourself separate from the object of what you're doing, uh, whether it's you and the typewriter, or you and the piano, or you and the easel, or you and running, or the tennis racket, all these kinds of examples. Uh, there's a kind of flow and merger of uh, self and object, or self and world. And Garfield wants to use this as a another way of talking about no-self, the no-self of no separation. Now what these examples, uh, going back to Butcher Ding, all have in common is that no separation and no-self are uh, manifestations of great expertise and long practice. They're the culmination of an immersive practice that results in, t in the non-separation and the experience of flow or the experience of no-self. And this is supposed to be in contrast with our ordinary way of doing things. However, it's interesting that the idea of immersion can be used in, a, in, a, in really just the opposite sense to describe not something expert, but something completely ordinary. And Garfield touches on this when he uh, quotes Heidegger uh, in the, describing the distinction between ready at hand and present at hand. And to have things ready at hand, in Heidegger's terminology, is just the way things naturally are in our ordinary life. Uh, we know our way around in our world without explicitly thinking about it. When we walk through a doorway, we don't have to think about is my head going to hit the top? You know, am I going to fit in there? How do I maneuver my arms and legs to pass through? We don't think about it at all. We just walk through and the knowledge oh, that this is a door and it's a certain size and my body's going to fit there never is thought about explicitly. 
but if you know if you go out, go on um, somebody's uh, little sailboat and you get in going uh, down uh, under the deck and have to duck your head and walk down the narrow stairs and maybe you bump yourself going down the first time all of a sudden the automaticity of walking through this doorway disappears and you're a little bit unsteady in your feet and you're ducking your head and everything that you would ordinarily uh, do without thinking you start thinking about and Heidegger would say that doorway on the little sailboat is present at hand. It's present as a separate object that you have to think about. It's not ready at hand as just part of the normal uh, framework of your world, which is a kind of seamless whole. It's almost not even divided into uh, separate parts or things. Uh, you just move through it pretty seamlessly like a fish through the water. So that, Heidegger uh, wants to suggest that the real way of being in the world is immersion. Uh, and that uh, we're not separate individuals navigating our way uh, through a maze of things but that we in our world normally form a kind of uh, seamless interactive whole. And his whole vocabulary, which can seem uh, very esoteric, is an attempt to uh, get away from the language of separate things and separate people and think about being in the world. And he uses a lot of hyphens to sort of indicate that kind of uh, connection, being in, being hyphen in, hyphen the, hyphen world, right? It's all, in German, probably one really long, difficult word, right? So that's a very different kind of immersion. It's our natural state, not an expert state. And we, uh, we have that sense of uh, natural immersion in uh, the koan about Joshu and Nansen, where uh, Joshu as a young man asks Nansen, what is the way? Nansen says, your ordinary mind is the way. Joshu doesn't quite get it and says, well, how do I direct myself towards that? And nonsense says, if you try to direct yourself, you miss it, right? Uh, that's, again, a picture of a naturalness, a oneness with the way, or the Tao, that is where you already are. And if you try to start thinking about it, well, then you go from Heidegger's uh, ready at hand into present at hand. You start, instead of the whole thing being automatic and natural, you start trying to think, where is the way? How do I get attuned with it? Am I doing it right yet? Am I there? And then all of a sudden, you've fallen out of sync with it. And it's present at hand as a separate thing. 
So it's a very um, fundamental tension in our practice about whether we think that immersion uh, or oneness or no self is a special state that we have to practice long and hard to achieve or whether we practice in a kind of uh, faith or rest in the assumption that it's, it's the way things already are and that uh, there's no particular kind of skill involved in it. Now there's yet another dimension uh, to immersion that I think we ought to address because it's the way in which we are um, immersed in the habitual or immersed in our cultural surround. Heidegger uh, recognized that although there's a, a simple, natural way to be immersed in the world, there's also a way in which that immersion can be uh, simply routine or habitual and then it's deadening rather than enlivening and this is sort of common enough to us where we sort of feel like instead of going with the flow we're going with the herd right uh, and Heidegger's uh, word for that was the they das man you're just going along with they Right? You're doing what everybody else is doing. And in a certain sense, this has a, an element of flow to it. You know, you're going down the stairs of the subway with a crowd and you just are swept along by the crowd, down the stairs and onto the platform and onto the train, and it's just the crowd moving and you're part of the crowd, right? Uh, that's one way of just being immersed in the they. But less benign forms are when uh, you're immersed in a kind of cultural common sense, which has stereotypes about the nature or roles of women, or people of different countries or races, or children or old people, or people with disabilities. Um, the they may have all sorts of unexamined assumptions about differences that we don't think about. That we move through that sea of assumptions just the way we move through that doorway without thinking about are we going to fit and uh, how is it constructed and uh, is it uh, built well or not. It just becomes a, uh, a whole co a seemingly common sense set of assumptions that we don't question. And so um, immersion, which at a certain micro level feels like attunement with life and with the Tao, at certain macro levels all of a sudden can take on this um, uh, much more insidious kind of um, uh, sense of conditioning or inauthenticity. Uh, the psychoanalytic literature, uh, 
Winnicott referred to that as the false self, very, very similar to Heidegger's The They, the kind of uh, automatic conformity that we drift into and lose track of uh, what our own values or ideas or interests might be if we begin to separate ourselves out from, from that. Um, there's also a very um, parallel uh, literature around the notion of recognition that has this two-sided uh, uh, difference associated with it. Uh, when we talk about recognition, typically in America or in uh, uh, versions of psychoanalysis that we've read by uh, people like Jessica Benjamin, uh, recognition uh, or mirroring is a kind of a very positive way of a person feeling seen, feeling recognized. And this, you know, goes back through Jessica to the Hegelian idea of uh, you can't be yourself by yourself. Who you are emerges uh, through mutual recognition, through interdependence and the interplay uh, of one person and another uh, being seen and responded to appropriately. And uh, Jessica took that uh, Hegelian idea of mutual recognition and combined it with the Winnicott, Winnicott's picture of the mother and the baby uh, and thought that that kind of mutual recognition is the way we form a, our basic sense of self and other uh, developmentally. So there, it's, um, Kohat had something similar uh, that he called mirroring, uh, which is a, another kind of early response, responsiveness, uh, where the mother uh, uh, allows the baby to see herself reflected in the mother's attention and responsive action. Uh, so these forms of recognition or mirroring uh, are very uh, positive and developmentally necessary. But just like this notion of immersion, uh, it, can it, it can also have a dark side. And it's, uh, it's interesting that um, the dark side or, of recognition is... Um, uh, been much more emphasized in uh, French psychoanalysis and philosophy, where to be seen uh, isn't to be uh, seen genuinely for who you are in a way that makes you feel affirmed. Uh, very often it, uh, it means to be scrutinized, to be judged, to be watched. You know, so you get, uh, in Foucault, he takes the image of uh, Bentham's panopticon, a prison system, where the, the, the warders can see the prisoners from in every direction, at every moment, uh, throughout the day, wherever they are. 
And being watched like that becomes the model, not just for how society uh, keeps track of people and makes them conform, but it becomes a model for our own self-consciousness. It becomes the model for the split inside of us between the observer and the observed. And uh, Foucault has all sorts of complex theories about the formation of the self in this kind of uh, social conditions of power relations. And that what we think of ourselves is an internalization of that kind of uh, scrutiny and judgment. Likewise in Lacan, when he talks about the mirror phase, he means something very different than Koha. Uh, uh, as I best I understand it, uh, Lacan says the child, the, the small child's uh, experience of itself is complicated, always shifting, has what we would call multiple self-states, always moving in and out of focus, right? A, a big, complex, ever-changing hodgepodge of, uh, of feeling. But uh, Lacan says one day the child looks literally into a mirror. And what he sees in the mirror is a single coherent picture of, 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 their, of the face. And instead of all this confusion and complexity, there's Sammy, right? Just a single image with, that now has a name on it, right? And Lacan uh, takes this, whether you think of it literally as looking in the mirror or the child sort of first encountering social interaction. Uh, the child is uh, confronted with a given image of himself. All of a sudden he's presented with how he looks to the world and what his role is to other people. And that this opens up the, uh, uh, an immediate divide between what's going on inside and what this uh, outer image is that everybody thinks is him, right? Uh, so there, recognition from the get-go becomes this um, problematic kind of misrecognition. Uh, it becomes, uh, by its nature, in a kind of enculturation into conformity, into the, the they, into the false self. Right? And then we have to have all sorts of particular practices that are somehow going to uh, break through uh, this kind of uh, conformity, this kind of common sense. So you've got then a couple, let's say at least three different uh, pictures of what practice does uh, when we think about immersion. The Butcher Ding flow 
picture of practice is it's the uh, disciplined development of expertise, right? Where we, through long study and uh, repetition, we develop as sort of second nature this complex series of uh, talents and abilities that allow us to move seamlessly through the complications of life, right? Uh, we are able to cut reality at the joints because we see clearly and we've learned this disciplined, expert way of moving through life. All right? The second way of immersion, in which ordinary mind is the way, immersion is what we already have attained just by being alive and being in the world. That our practice, in a certain sense, is, is one of leaving everything alone. We realize the extent to which we always think we're not part of it, that we think that the Tao is something esoteric or far away that we have to find or that we have to master, and that the practice in this model of immersion is, oh, we can stop all that. We can leave our, actually leave ourselves alone. We can watch all the ways in which we have been telling ourselves this is not it and just try to come to rest in being who we already are, right? That's the, the second practice orientation. The third orientation says immersion is something uh, uh, nefarious or perverse and inauthentic. Immersion is our false self of conformity. And we need something to wake us up or shake us up to break us out of our um, sort of unthinking going along with the flow in, in uh, conformist or inauthentic ways. And uh, what does it take to shake us out of our common sense? Some people, you know, Heidegger will say it has, it's awareness of death. Other people will say, well, you need to try LSD. Or other people will say mindfulness would do it, right? But whatever the means is, here the third version of practice is anti-immersion. How do I shake myself loose? So immersion is this very complicated idea that can come in three very distinct flavors. And it may be that we need uh, uh, three different names for three different kinds of uh, processes. But I think it's worth discussing which one of these is primarily how we see our life and how we see our practice. 